This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton and the University of Pennsylvania. I'm here on Zoom with my dear friend and colleague, Mike Yusin. Our third host, Jeff Klein, is out today. Mike, how are you doing today? And I'm doing great. I bet you're doing great. And make one comment on why I'm feeling so good. I'm actually on campus today at the university. It's a brilliant sunny day. And there must be 10,000 students out on pathways between buildings and lounging among the flowers. So it's, it's glorious. Oh, that's great, Mike. And I've been very excited to be back in the classroom. We all are masked. And at first, I wasn't sure how I was going to uh, adapt to that, but there's a lot of goodwill, good spirit. People are so happy to be together. And Mike, I have to tell you that one of my students said, I hear you on the radio every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern time here on Business Radio Series XM channel 132. (laughs) So it was a great pleasure to actually have one student who knew who I was before we even arrived. (laughs) Well, Mike, we have a really uh, wonderful show today. We've got a terrific guest and his name is Johnny Taylor. He is president and chief executive officer of the Society for Human Resource Management. And he has written a new book, brand new book, 2021. He's the author of Reset, A Leader's Guide to Work in an Age of Up Johnny, welcome to Leadership in Action. Please join us. Well, so glad to be here, Patty and Mike. It sounds like a group, right? (laughs) Going to do a a duet. Mike, can you sing? (laughs) I can dance, but we're not showing video. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Johnny, let me tell uh, our listeners a little bit more about you. Uh, First of all, you are, as as I said, the president and chief executive officer of the Society for Human Resource Management, known as SHRM. And SHRM is the largest HR professional association in the world with over 300,000 members in 165 countries. (laughs) You're a sought after voice on all matters affecting work and workers in the workplace. You frequently are asked to testify before Congress on critical workforce issues And you're the author, one of the authors of a weekly USA Today column called Ask HR. So, Johnny, I'm just going to ask you about the title of your book as a little bit of a warm up. Reset. Why did you choose the title Reset? So, Anne, let me tell you, it was, I'm going to tell you exactly, and I think we all remember where we were on Friday the 13th, (laughs) Friday, March 13th, 2020. Uh, I remembered sitting in my living room saying, "Uh uh-oh, my life's going to change. But that was the day that the president came on screen and famously said, basically, the world is shutting down. But I remembered thinking and listening to what they were all saying. Our leaders said 14, 21 days, 30 Mm -hmm. days on the mat. Do you remember, right? Yes. Everyone said this was a 
temporary moment. So I literally said, gosh, I'm not traveling. I don't have to get up in the morning and take my kid to school. So I'm going to use this time to write a book because it's a wonderful in the moment experience. And what am I observing and how is the world changing? But the title of the book at the time was The Great Pause. Because I literally thought 30 days at the outset, shut it down, this whole vaccine will be under control and we'll be back to work. And you know what happens with the pause, right? You hit the button and you pick up just where you left off. Well, when the 60th day passed and the 90th day and the ninth month, it became clear to me that the book I was writing was not going to be about a pause. It was literally about a reset, a reset about Everything, the way that we as human beings would experience life from March 13th forward, and specifically how work would change, the workplace would change, and workers, the whole definition of what a worker and employee would, how that was all going to change forever. And we were never going to go back to just hitting the pause button Mm -hmm. and picking up where we left off. So that's where it came from. It was literally a recognition. It started as a book was going to be called The Great Pause, and it turned into, oh, it's a reset. You know, I, I really appreciate your just keying in on those two words, pause and reset. And I have to say, I was taken by a quote you have in the book by Robert Kennedy. Yes. And that quote is, progress is a nice word. Maybe (laughs) pause is a nice word. But change is its motivator and change has its enemies. Yes. We human beings, right? As much as we say we want change, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, we have a very, very uncomfortable relationship with change. Right. And it was tested and continues to be tested even today. And I talked about it in the book, you know, everything from the policy changes that will be necessary to think differently about work in the 21st century to the behaviors of employees, you know, working remotely. What does that mean? What is a hybrid? Everyone uses that term, but hybrid means a whole bunch of different things to different people Uh, all together. What is an employee? I mean, think about this. This was the first time in history where we have provided unemployment benefits to people who were never employed. Think about it. You forever wanted to be an independent contractor. You could be your own boss. And, you know, you didn't want the boss to tell you what to do. Those of us, uh, you know, who went to work every day paid into unemployment insurance premiums or our employers did on our behalf Mm -hmm. so that when you hit this moment where through no fault of your own, you were out of work. You had an insurance there to save you. Well, we provided benefits to everyone, employees or not employees. So it just forces us all to Mm -hmm. think very differently about this. Yeah, so good. All right, I want to make sure Mike gets a word in edgewise. So Mike, why don't you pick it up from here? Well, first of all, Johnny, thank you for joining the show. Uh, I think your presence could be no more timely than it is in that we are in one enormous reset. So to stay on that for just at least a few more minutes, if you could itemize a couple of the areas where you think the reset is going to be very important, and are we going to reset in a forward direction or a reverse mm-hmm. direction? What do you think? Mm. So, yeah, I'm a great question, Mike. So I'm a guessing man. I think it's forward, but it won't come without resistance. Back to Anne's point about change, change. right? A couple of areas that we're going to see, I believe, and we've already begun to see them. One of them is what the workplace, how we define a workplace. 
that is forever changed. And, um, you know, we forever talked about separating work and home or work-life balance. Like those days are done. There is no more balance. In fact, I was just looking at a piece of research the other day that suggested people have worked harder during the break. Like they actually have burned out faster by working remotely because it all just blurs. There are no, none of those signs. It's 4.30. I need to start packing up to get my kid from daycare at five o'clock. No, you just work until seven. You start at seven, you end at seven. So I think that's one area where there'll be no returning. We are going to have to figure out how to help people, our employees manage their lives. And so one thing that I don't talk about anymore and have long not talked about, but now for sure, was work-life balance. No such thing. We're talking, the new phrase that I use in the book is work-life integration. (laughs) Because you've got, and there it's more than potato and potato. It is really a significant significant difference. And I think that is something that we are now going to sort over the next several months is how do we integrate work and life? Literally, your work went to your home, right? Because many of us are working at home. The other area is a policy issue that I feel very strongly about that the, the, the genie is out of the lantern or whatever, how the phrase goes, right? And that's around paid leave. 1993, we, we, passed the Family Medical Leave Act, 12 weeks of unpaid leave. We've, what we've realized as a result of the pandemic is unpaid leave is tantamount to no leave for a lot of workers. And so what you've said to someone is you wake up in the morning, you're very sick. You could be COVID positive. You have a decision to make. Don't go to work. You potentially can't pay your bills. You can't feed your children. You can't whatever. Or you go to work sick and get other people sick. We have literally, we're at the point where this is the strongest and most compelling case for paid family leave. And it's not just a woman's thing, by the way, very important for women, I get it, but it's literally, I don't want a sick man coming to work, having to decide between staying home and being well or coming to work and earning a living. And so we have lived, those are two areas in particular, Mike, that I think from a policy standpoint and in practice, we're going to have to rethink. And it's literally reset time. There's no going back to it. That it's, we're past that stage now. Johnny, really interesting. Let me come back to that in a minute because I think Anne yeah. wants to grab the baton back for a moment. <laughs> Mike, you're so good. Yes, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall. I am here with Mike Useem, and together we are speaking with Johnny Taylor Jr., President and CEO of the Society for Human Resource Management, also known as SHRM. And we're talking to Johnny about his book, Reset, A Leader's Guide to Work in an Age of Upheaval. Mike, finish your thought. Back to you. Uh, so, Johnny, just following the the kind of laying out of where we're going. I I like the optimism in the sense that uh, some things for sure have become better, less commuting, more time with family, Uh, work family. I love the the (laughs) idea that this whole work-life balance thing may be uh, unbalanced for a while because we're pretty much now merging work with home. All that said, to what extent as you think about this, and the members of your enormous organization think about it, is there a downside danger that people in middle management are gonna find it harder to manage those that are working with them 
in this increasingly irreversible remote world. What do you think? Yeah, you're spot on. Listen, we always had a challenge, even when everyone was in a traditional pre-pandemic workplace with our people managers, right? That is a really hard skill. So just being the best engineer doesn't mean you'll be a great manager of engineers. Well, now you have further complicated this thing by saying there's some employees who are going to be in the office with you and some who won't. And so you, while we have all aspired to be able to artic- clearly articulate the culture of our organization, we now have subcultures within the organization, the people who work remotely, the people who work mm-hmm. hybrid, and the people who work in the office, trying to ensure that those people all have an even shot, that they have some common experience with your culture is incredibly hard. And one other quick point on that is that we're asking people managers to move away from what we've taught them forever, which was focused on equality and now focus on equity. That's a big difference. You know, in the past, if Jane was allowed, if the hours are nine to five and you let Jane come in at 930 because she had to drop off her kid, then Joe could ask for that same thing in the name of equality. And now we're saying, people, managers, you've actually got to exercise your discretion and and look at equity. That's a big deal for us to maintain and ask people who weren't that great at people management before the pandemic. Great. And let me throw it back to you. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Johnny, yeah, you got me excited on that last point because I know that Mike and I and our colleague Jeff can see that in our, you know, in our program. We have, first of all, the whole program was able to pivot on March 13th from in-person to remote and to pivot successfully. (laughs) We did a good job. (laughs) And now we are having, uh, in fact, you'll smile at me, we're having conversations about, quote, return to work. (laughs) <laughs> which I find a little annoying. Right, because you never work. stopped, right? <laughs> right. Good so I like to call it you return to campus as That's opposed right. to return to work. And in, in our experience, the, the, the range of particular circumstances of our staff is varied from uh, individuals who have uh, fewer ties at home, whether it is young children or elderly, you know, elderly parents, or whether or not they themselves are immunocompromised. So the range of enthusiasm about coming back to campus to work is really varied. So how, as a supervisor, as a manager, how do you treat people equitably Yes. When, and I'm sure that other organizations are in similar situations, we are often faced with guidelines or mandates from the top that tell us you need to be in the office X many days and so on. So could you could you say a little bit more about the challenge of treating uh, our workforce equitably? Well, it's our it's one of the biggest challenges that we face because our policy framework, our legal framework, actually does not reward that sort of analysis and and um, execution in the workplace. It penalizes it because you're again encouraged under the current framework to treat everyone the same. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually glad that the pandemic forced us to have conversations at the EEOC, the Department of Labor, what have you, to say, 
everyone's not the same. We, right. you know, for all of us talking diversity, well, let me tell you, the difficulty with diversity is inclusion. It's figuring out how to manage a diverse population of people. Right. And what you've described is diverse people have diverse needs. And so this mm-hmm. idea of guaranteed equality is a real problem. So mm-hmm. what I will say is, as I shorten my answer there, it is at the end of the day, we have got to learn to exercise that muscle. Uh, that is a muscle of equity. And so our people managers have to understand it. But here's the funny thing. So must our employees, because employees, with the exception of this newest generation who's just coming into the workplace, Generation Z, they've worked in an environment where they expect equality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, except for Generation Z, right? That's right. (laughs) Yes, okay, which is an interesting match because you can have those, um, you know, and I'm in that generation that expect to show up at particular particular times and now bringing in employees who expect uh, a more equitable, flexible treatment in the workplace. Mike, let me... I'm so glad that you used the term flexible. One of the red herrings, one of the problems with the media is they went out early on and said, everyone wants to work remotely. Well, that's simply not true. First of all, the data will tell you that somewhere between 46 and 52% of the workforce never had the luxury of working remotely. And we're not just talking about, you know, healthcare workers and law enforcement. We're talking about regular employees who work at Walmart, retail, et cetera. So a lot of folks had to work. But the other thing that we're learning is even across the generations, by the way, if you're listening to what is, we for the first time have five generations in the workplace at one time. So intergenerational issues to put aside, we're learning that even within it, our older workers were ready to come back to the workplace. Some young workers who, for example, had recently graduated college, moved to New York City, are living yeah. in a 400 square foot fish efficiency, said, mm-hmm. I didn't move here to live in a cube. I wanted to right. interact with other people. I wanted to find someone to date, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic killed all of that. So mm-hmm. I will say we are seeing, and this is what's becoming difficult for managers, is you can't just broad, paint anything with a broad brush anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I promise to turn this back to Mike, but I'm wondering, because I'm thinking many in our listening audience are uh, managing others. Is there, do you have a practical suggestion that we might might take advantage of? Yeah. And it's going to feel like a little bit of a commercial, but we rolled out a new product called the PMQ, which is the People Manager Quali- Qualification, which is a diagnostic tool followed up with training interventions to help people manage in a new environment, a post-pandemic world. It's it's a heck of a different world. And what does that, what does that tool, you know, how does it help you? So it first takes your managers and it says, let me tell you where you are on the continuum from manager in need of help to great people manager, right? <laughs> so we assess them and it's interactive and it's kind of cool and has these little characters and all this good stuff. I'm too old to know about that, but anyway, they have it. But what it does is it says, you know, essentially on this continuum, you're pretty good. Here are the things that you've got to work on. Managing a diverse workforce. Using, for example, I mean, every day, the pronoun thing. The yeah. generation never had a conversation on a freaking pronoun, like you're either <laughs> he or it, and they was plural, therefore it could never apply to an individual. I mean, it was just right. something, but new people managers have to navigate a very different workplace than we can imagine. So that's mm-hmm. what it is. And so after we've assessed where you are, we then say, and here are the things you can do to become better as a people manager. Johnny, that's a great example. And Mike and I, before the show, we're talking about exactly that. <laughs> Mike, let me bring you back in. 
Yeah, I did. Well, Johnny, staying on the same theme a little bit longer here, and coming back to the great title, Reset, that really feels right on the money to me as well. For managers listening to the program, if they were to have a direct conversation with you, what would you say is going to be the biggest reset they have to get on top of in the way they manage or the way they lead to borrow the title of the program? Yes. So what's the, what's the number one place where we do have to pivot in the reset that we're all part of? Empathy. We have, for, and not to be confused with sympathy, um, it, sympathy is important, but empathy. Uh, managers have heretofore not thought they needed to walk in your shoes or experience life through your lens. It was all about, I'm here for work. I've really, you know, that big divide between your personal life and your business life, I'm not interested in that. In fact, the loss is I probably should know about that. So no, I don't want to know that you're having, you're in a mental and emotional crisis because that's not what I want to know. The ADA says I'm not supposed to ask and you shouldn't tell. So there's just this new world where managers are expected to be more empathetic. That's the biggest reset that we've ever, I mean, think about it. just right now, you're in a Zoom session, you got your kids at home and you got kids running around in the background. Before the pandemic, that was unacceptable. It really was. And the manager said, listen, your children are your children, not mine. Come fix this. Come to work. I'm paying you. And now that doesn't work anymore. It's an unacceptable standard. So number one, and I hate to use superlatives, but at the top of the game, managers have got to figure out how to um, exercise that now atrophied muscle called empathy. Totally. I completely agree that the understanding if you're the big boss with the lives of others, the fact that there are a couple of kids, a dog and a cat, <laughs> uh, lots of complications maybe with in-laws or grandparents and so on. That said, what would be one or two methods by which somebody who hears that and says, I wanna be more empathetic for becoming more empathetic? Right. One, communicate with employees who you'd otherwise not communicate. More than just, I mean, you remember the old round bag lunches with a cross section of your employees? It actually matters. And I would submit do them one on one because that's how you get to know people, right? So, one on one, and I do it as a leader now, is randomly I'll pick someone out of my employee population and say, let's go have lunch. That's at the CEO level, that's the vice president, that's the line manager. It really matters because people then are heard. And the second thing that I would say is to constantly survey your employees to get a sense, not once a year or twice a year, employee satisfaction scores and engagement, literally pulse surveys. What are we getting right so that you listen? Great, great advice. And back to you. Uh, well, Johnny, you've cheered me up a little bit because <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, in our, um, you know, in our small sphere, we are doing quote, pulse surveys three times a year just to take the temperature, so to speak, of yes of the staff and we also have what we call a pulse committee that's nicknamed PCOM. Oh. <laughs> and they're, you know, a group a group of individuals who have stepped up to try to um, speak upline. Because as we know, and I know from being here on Leadership in Action with Mike, when you are at the top, wherever the top is, and the top doesn't have to be the tippy top, it can just be the top of the middle or the top of the bottom. <laughs> yep. It's hard for that information to flow upward. So if you have some colleagues who will help help you hear uh, what is happening, I think that also I found can be can be very helpful. 
Hmm. Is there is there another suggestion that you would make? So because you know, got to get that information upline. Yeah. So this is going to seem a little uh, generic, and and we probably heard this word, but we've got to develop trust. Um, and by the way, bilateral or mutual trust. Mm-hmm. Um, we're at a point where it is as us versus they in the workplace as anything I've ever seen. Uh, workers feel one way, employers feel another way, managers mm-hmm. feel another way. I mean, and listen, I was a former labor and employment lawyer. I've seen, uh, you know, the two go into their corners. But at a level now, absent unionization, just mm-hmm. regular employees say, you all employers, I don't trust you. And by the way, employers are now saying, and I don't trust you either, employee. And this is a unique, uh, something I've never seen in my 30 years of practice is where employers are like, people are ghosting us. Like they <laughs> literally don't show up to an interview. Worse yet, they get the job and then don't show up on the first day, period. And the phone number that they gave me to contact them is actually a burner phone from Walmart. Like I can't ever find this person. Um, This is what's happening. So we have this crisis of trust between Mm -hmm. men. And it's not one way employees don't trust managers. Managers don't trust employees. Our guest today is Johnny Taylor Jr., president and CEO of the Society for Human Resource Management. Johnny is also author of the new book, Reset, A Leader's Guide to Work in an Age of Upheaval. You mentioned um, the labor worker labor relationships and said that trust is has been uh, really damaged in both directions, not just one, but in both directions. And uh, we, I've been hearing and reading a bit about a rise in interest in unions. And I know Mike and I can even say that at a university campus across the nation. We're having greater interest in the unionization of graduate students. <laughs> so I just would be very interested on, you know, to hear you comment on unions and the rise in interest. So I, I think it's twofold. First of all, even pre-election, because I'm going to attribute some of it to the current environment, which is obviously more receptive to unions on from a political landscape standpoint. But even before that, we were beginning to hear um, the uh, a, a sort of a, a drumbeat of employees saying, I'm not sure my company is watching out for me, mm-hmm. right? I know they're making a lot of money and they make a lot of money and I'm not sure that I'm getting my fair share of it, whatever that is. And the people weren't particularly sure about what their fair share should be because here at Sherm, for example, we surveyed and said, well, how much do you need? Like what, what is a fair percentage? Um, But interestingly, people literally are feeling like they're being gotten over on by management Mm -hmm. because it's not and it's not what unions historically came about for, Mm -hmm. which, remember, was about worker protection. Listen, you have all of the laws in place right now. You don't need a union for OSHA problems. You don't need them for harassment problems in the workplace. You don't like you don't really need them for that. This Mm -hmm. is about a fundamental sense that I'm being heard and that Mm -hmm. I'm being compensated fairly. That, that's really what we're seeing, the surprise. And that began pre-pandemic. Well, then fast forward, the pandemic happens, and we reach 15 16 17% unemployment. And almost indiscriminately, companies trying to respond to all of this just laid people off. Yeah. And that really then absolutely fuel to the fire with employees saying, see, they didn't lay off the CEO, they didn't lay off senior management, they did it all on our backs. And worse yet, Coming out of this, 
you know, many of these companies' stocks have risen through the roof. So these people are wealthier than they started. And that, that is really, really this, this idea of the salariat and the proletariat has really taken on a whole different uh, level of intensity. Then you elect a Democratic Congress and a Democratic White House, which frankly, last week, the president invited labor to the organized labor to the White House, mm-hmm. called it Labor's House. And my gosh, there you have it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, I really appreciate your comment. And if I may, uh, might give a little shout out to the University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School. I was very impressed that we were able to navigate those waters. The Wharton School invited, invited people to do voluntary separation packages. And there were people who did, who found in the time of pandemic that, you know, this was the time was now suddenly right. Uh, But as a result, people, you know, were (laughs) in their positions. So um, yes, I can certainly see how employees would really feel gotten over if, you know, now you need me and now suddenly, suddenly you don't. So um, Johnny, just curious if we could maybe take a little bit of a turn here and talk about your leadership role. You're overseeing a huge nonprofit. Can you talk a little bit about your experience serving as president and CEO? Well, yeah. So I think the thing that makes this role so interesting is I don't know if I'm just lucky or smart or both, but (laughs) I came to HR, the world's largest HR association, from having been a lawyer, by the way, and having spent most of my time in a corporate, major corporations, Fortune 200, right? And I will tell you, um, this wasn't exactly where the best and brightest people went to spend their time, right? But I had this thing that literally uh, in year 2017, if you remember, there was the Me Too moment. And that started coming about. And I just, you could just palpably feel that the conversation was going to pivot to people in a knowledge-based economy, that it was going to be all about people. Layer on to that, that we have a birth rate challenge in America. We just stopped having fewer people. So you got an economy taking off that needs people, notwithstanding AI and automation, all that, but you need people. So you have a shortage of people and an economy demanding more, so more of them. And so I said, this is going to be our moment. Could I have predicted COVID? Could I have predicted uh, George Floyd's untimely? No, but we are at this moment where HR is, has literally come off of the sidelines as a strategic function and is now, we used to say, can we get a seat at the table? Well, hell, we're in the middle of the table right now. And sometimes people throwing things at you and otherwise. Um, but it is the moment for our profession. Now, I will say this. The most difficult part of this job is we don't just represent management. We represent all HR. Um, And that includes people. So trying to balance the needs of employers, the demands of employees is a lot. Right. Yeah, I love that you underscore that and reminds me of your comment in your book about the human and human resources. Let's not let's not forget. Mike, uh, join join us in this line of questioning. Uh, Well, Johnny, just to stay indeed, uh, as Anne suggested on this line of questioning, when you moved from serving as an attorney yes. to now the chief executive of an enormous association, uh, that's, a, that's a big step. 
And just to fill in one blank there, it means, at least as, as I think about that, you had to go from fairly specific technical application of your knowledge to now managing everything. Yes. The culture, the moment, uh, the energy. So what do you think prepared you in your past to make that change and be ready to step up and become a general manager of, of, as it turns out, an enormous organization? So this is going to surprise you, but Blockbuster. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I was once the vice president of Blockbuster Video. And what I saw was an organization, if any of us, some of your younger people might not remember it, but remember Blockbuster was as big a brand as Apple was back in the day. It was on every corner. And I was a part of the executive team. We got very, very complacent. We were making money hand over fist. We were Wall Street's darling. We bought everything from discovery zones, which are outdoor play stores to spelling entertainment. I mean, we were everywhere and we had cash to do it. And then all of a sudden in a matter of a decade, we became bankrupt. We went away. And so that was something that as I came into this job, and frankly, every job I've had since Blockbuster, I I always realized that uncomfortable word, the relationship that we have with change, the change was going to come whether you embraced it or not. And that as a leader, yes, I needed to make sure the lights were on, if you will, you know, money, but I needed to ensure that we were, I read a book called Becoming Essential, that we needed to become essential to customers and people who would pay for us and to our members. And and that's what has driven, but the preparation for that um, mindset was I saw a business go from the top of the world to non-existent in less than a decade. So Johnny, I I can't resist uh, (laughs) describing a guest we had on the program. More than a year ago, he had been chief executive of Cisco for some 20 years, John Chambers. Yes. I probably run into him along the way. And he said, having gone through a couple crises, personally, he was at Wang that failed. Yep. And he was at the uh, top of Cisco when uh, back in 001, there was a huge uh, drop in anything to do with the internet, including uh, Cisco. He said that turned out to be a virtue he would not wish upon himself, but having been through that kind of catastrophic change, going the wrong direction, made an enormous difference in how he looks at the future. I think I've heard the same thing from you. Yes, hands down. And and in a way, not to be paranoid about it, but I have a very different relationship with risk, with the need to innovate, and with change. Because again, I say this to my colleagues all the time, Change is coming whether you want it or not. So you better get ahead of it or it's not going to be pretty. So I've got a couple more questions, although, Anne, you probably want to give us a breather here. Well, only to say, Mike, that it's you and me. Thank you, Sam. Anne Greenhall, and we're talking with Johnny Taylor, Johnny Taylor about his new book. And that's Reset on SiriusXM channel 132. So, Mike, follow up with your question, then I've got some too. Okay, so Johnny, maybe the last question for me at this point, as you took the job as CEO of this organization of more than 300,000 people, and by the way, to put that in context, the total employment of IBM right now is not much more than the number of members you've got as your association. What is, what's maybe at the top of your list of what you learned to do 
that you have to do that you didn't see going into the job you would need to do now that you're there. So what what's really caught your attention as, as a must do, but you didn't see it before you got there? Um, and I'm going to go back to something because I, I use I had to learn to be empathetic. Uh, empathetic leadership. And I, and I don't say that it's really important. I was a hard driving lawyer. Someone had to win and someone had to lose. And my job was to make sure that I was on the winning side and my client was. <laughs> and I got it. I'm going to be very transparent. I tell this, I was, and I was working early in a law firm and I had a paralegal who called me at the end of the day, we're working on a brief. And she says, I got to go pick up my kid. And I said, what? I need this done now. And she says, well, I got a kid. What do you want me to do? And I said, the operative term here is you have a kid, not me. I was like, <laughs> having no parts of it. And I was hard and I got the job done and we won and I was, you know, a big law firm. So I was doing well, but I totally lacked empathy. Mm. Not that I could have changed the end, but I sure as hell could have done it. Uh, and when I literally said to her, can you imagine looking across the table from this woman, single mom, who's got to decide between you and her kid at school who needs to be picked up? And you say, listen, you decide to have children. I don't have children. I chose <laughs> not to because I and that's what and I look back and I tell the story now. What a horrible leader. I was! What a horrible person, human being. And I had to learn top of everything that I've done is that if I don't lead with empathy, I can be out there. And, and someone said this the other day, you don't, you can't be a leader if you don't have followers by definition. Mm -hmm. And so yep. people will follow you when they feel like you at least care about their lived experience, even if it's not yours. And even if you can't do anything about it, you at least need to act as if you care. Yep. Johnny, I've got one more question. I'm going to throw it back at Ann. And that is, as you went from what you were doing, maybe supervising dozens of attorneys, but something in that scale, maybe under 100, and even a blockbuster, you had people working for you, but not in the numbers you have That's where you are now. And I've always thought that, that troubles are kind of linear with numbers of employees. The more employees, the more things that can go wrong or become a headache on Thursday and Friday afternoon. So how have you personally coped with the fact that as you have gone from uh, significant companies like Blockbuster up to where you are now, how have you learned to cope yourself personally with the fact that uh, more things can go wrong, more problems show up on your desk and they're bigger, more consequential. So over to you. Yeah, I spend a lot of time. I'm glad you, this is a really fair question. When I heard growing up that the C-suite, that corner office is sometimes a very lonely place. It is. And there are not a lot of people who can really relate to your, your, the weight of the world that you carry. Before the pandemic, for example, listen, they pay me well. I have a contract. Even if they let me go, they got to pay me for several years. But my employees don't have that same luxury. They don't have that net, safety net. And so, and, and so a lot of the things that I was trying to decide, do we lay people? people off to save the business? Um, do we work in the office or not? Do I bring people back to Like all of those things, I needed to find other CEOs to talk with and to bounce it off of. Because listen, I love my mother and my father and they've always been trusted advisors for me, but they can't advise me on how to oversee and manage a large organization with these issues. So there are only a handful of people 
who can help you really think through this and it's colleagues contemporaries. So that, that's what I learned the most is that you've got to have a network of other CEOs who can tell you what it was like to go through. I mean, God, for, I wish I could find, you're talking about the Cisco um, gentleman, but what about the guy who went through the Tylenol scare, who was the CEO of you know Johnson Johnson or whoever made Tylenol at the time? Only people who've been through that fire can relate. Yeah. Great point. Really good point. Anne, over to you. Oh, thank you, Mike. So, Johnny, if we could just continue on uh, with this line uh, for a moment longer. I love your comment about your having been trained as a lawyer, highly competitive, someone wins, someone loses, and, you know, I, you want to be on the winning, on the winning team. So when you were younger, you know, say coming up, coming yes. up, maybe, maybe a young teen, did you have hopes or aspirations to be CEO, top executive? What, what were your hopes and aspirations when you were young? Always a lawyer. Since seven really? years old, seven years old, um, I'd sit down and watch Perry Mason with my grandmother <laughs> on a black and white television, right? And um, I just was in awe of his ability to influence, persuade people mm. and win. And so I decided at seven, literally, that I wanted to be a lawyer. And it was never, I went to undergrad and finished in two and a half years, went to law school and did my master's at the same time. At 23 years old, I was practicing law, 23. Wow. So JD, master's and undergrad degree, because I knew precisely what I wanted to do, which was to practice law. And so if you ask me what I thought I'd be, I literally thought I'd be a Supreme Court justice. That was my big, I went to subsequently, I don't know if you know this about my career, but for a while I ran Thurgood Marshall College Fund because I, I wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. That was my goal in life. So Johnny, what happened? Um, I realized how much money they made. <laughs> no and i'm being, i am being so honest i said wait a minute they have you know mid-level associates who make the same salary as supreme court justice eh, not so much i honestly made a seriously you know i grew up in i had very modest uh background and so i thought i knew you know what wealth was. And then I went into a large law firm and saw what major company GCs, general counsels making, et cetera. And I said, okay, not so much. To be honest so, and transparent. Yeah, no, I'm glad. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. So um, as a young person coming up, you saw you thought law, you thought Supreme Court justice. Yes. And then the some of just the realities of life and living had an impact on you. I have to tell you, I was very touched by your dedication to, to your daughter. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, so, um, I, if you could see me, I, you'd see me smiling. That, I, the mention of that child brings me happiness. Well, I can tell. I see that. And, and I'll just speak first person and then ask you for your thoughts and response. I think my life experiences as a parent uh, has uh, enriched my experience as a teacher, a supervisor. I think my experiences as a teacher and a supervisor have also <laughs> enriched my experience as a parent, that it's gone both ways. I'm not saying that's true for everyone. I think I was open and ready and ripe for it. But I'm wondering how your experience as a, as a parent, as a father, has influenced your view of work and the workplace. Well, particularly as the father of a girl. Yes. Um, 
I I literally have said this. I, I was really I didn't have a kid until I was forty years old. So I was really, really career focused. So it wasn't just out of under. I was real serious about my career. And then up pops this beautiful little girl. It literally changed me at the DNA level. Empathy. Um, I mean, just in a way that you just can't explain it. The idea, I began to understand that single mom who I talked about 17 years earlier in my career. Now I've got to figure out when someone calls, no matter what's going on, if I got a call right now while I'm here on this show with you all and they said your daughter's in trouble at school, it's a wrap. I'm out, right? I'm just gone. And so what I have found, and I say this to a lot of my male counterparts, and I've seen this as CEOs. Um, having a child changes you. Having a daughter really changes you. <laughs> well, you know, there is some literature, if you allow the academic in me. <laughs> Mike, you can you can uh, vouch for me on this, that men, fathers who have daughters who are in positions, executive positions, are uh, demonstrated to be more attuned to yes. opportunities for women coming up. That's than right. those who, who are not. So there's that opportunity for greater empathy. Mike, we're going to do an AAR pretty soon, but I think you've got a chance for another question in here. <laughs> okay, so Johnny, uh, kind of a, a summary point before we get, get into our after-action review. For people who, like you, have wanted to be a lawyer since age seven, or they've got a pretty good fix on what they want, um, but look at your career and the twists and turns that it's taken. What advice for people who are pretty career determined at an early age would you render now with the benefit of looking back on your own years since age seven, you wanted to end up at the Supreme Court? Uh, you have to remain very, very agile. You know, it's a new word, you know, now all of a sudden it's in vogue, right? Agile. But it's more than a word for technology. It's a way that you have to live your life. The opportunities that presented themselves, listen, I wasn't trained as an HR person, but I became an HR person. I wasn't trained to go into association world, but I spent 20 plus years at Fortune 500 companies. But when the opportunity happens, it happens and you've got to seize it. Terrific. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to piggyback on that, Mike, if you don't mind, and then we can do our AAR. So, Johnny, uh, what does the future look like for you? Do you have a, a, a sense of where you're going? So, yeah, like I don't. Okay. <laughs> <think> that's true. <laughs> Welcome to the club. That's right. When I grow up, right, and then I'll be 90 saying the same thing. But, um, no, I, I tell you what it, for me, I take this work that I do at Sherm the Society for Human Resource Management, as the most important job on the planet. Because healthcare workers and law enforcement and those types of folks, they protect lives. And I protect livelihoods. And both are important, equally important. People absolutely should have the dignity of, of work. They should experience it in a harassment free, discrimination free, equitable way. And to the extent my colleagues and I can, and we have this tagline that we created while we were here, better workplaces lead to a better world. And so if we literally do what we do, not to stay out of the lawsuit or stay off the front page of the newspaper, but if our goal, if we can create better people, because we have them captive for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, and they go spread that 
you know, enlightened view of the world, be it toward women or toward visual minorities or toward the formerly incarcerated, whatever it is we do, if we nail it in this period where we have your mind and your heart, then we can actually change the world. And that's why I'm at a place right now. I think I want to do this for a while. Oh, that's great. Very good. Well, Mike, we have just, you know, just a little bit of time for an after action review. And I'm going to start with you and then say a word and then have Johnny get the last word here. So what would you say in reflection? Well, and thank you. Just two bullets. Number one, next to the word reset. Uh, It's the title of the book. And boy, it's the title of the era. We can't complain. We got to move forward, but we can't do the same thing moving forward. We've done in the past. Reset. And number two, uh, a point that we touched on, didn't get into, and that is build or find your network. Um, They're vital for your own mental health and attitude. They're vital for knowing what to do. And and Johnny did say uh, building a network of people in similar positions as chief executives prove vital. So reset, number one. Find your network number two. Mm, that's good, Mike. Yeah, I definitely agree with reset. And I love Johnny's uh, earlier comment about pause versus reset. And, you know, so yes, yes on that. I think I might end with your quote too on work being about livelihood and how really, really important that is. And when I think livelihood, I think not only task, you know, what we are doing, but who we are, the being side and the emotive side, caring and empathy. So Johnny, what would you like our listeners to take away from from our conversation? That when you are a leader, you literally can dictate in large part, not only the employees over whom you have responsibility, their trajectory, but their children, their spouses, and the communities. I mean, you really do have a huge responsibility when you take over and accept the role as leader. Very good. Well, Johnny, I really want to thank you so much for joining us today on Leadership in Action. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about your new book. And uh, listeners, if you will, please join us again. I am Ann Greenhall, and I am here with Mike Yuseem. And together, we've had pleasure speaking with Johnny Taylor Jr. about his book, Reset. I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Ann Greenhall. You've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 